Okay, turn if you would to Acts 13 in your Bibles or your bulletins. We've heard of Paul preaching thus far, but this is the first recorded sermon from Paul. Um, And we will look at uh, the first part of the sermon today, and we will, Lord willing, finish up the next part next time. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, uh, will you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your Word. May we not be content to merely uncover lovely doctrines, but may those doctrines lead us on the road to doxology. Uh, May they transform us. May they contribute to the renewal of our minds that our lives might be offered up as a sacrifice of praise and of spiritual worship. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 13. 13 through 25. You recall Paul, Barnabas, and John are on the island of Cyprus. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then he asked for a king and got... Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Michael Horton wrote a book called Christless Christianity um, in which he makes the case that by and large the American church has begun to 
leave Christ out of Christianity. A good kind of summary quote from the book. He says, so in my view, we are living out our creed, but that creed is closer to the American dream than it is to the Christian faith. The claim I am laying out in this book is that the most dominant form of Christianity today reflects a zeal for God that is nevertheless without knowledge, particularly as Paul himself specifies the knowledge of God's justification of the wicked by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Uh, That's true, isn't it? In fact, that's probably why most of us are in this room. We've seen it. We've seen the trajectory. We've jumped ship because we know where that's headed. But it doesn't cost us anything to kind of lob bombs at the evangelies, right? But what about us? What does this text have to say to us? As long as our hearts, our human hearts, are churning out idols, uh, there is no safe haven from this Christless Christianity. I, I, as you know, got to go to the Ligonier Conference this week, and I got to be a part of the meals and see behind the scenes a little bit. And it truly is a rich, reformed, Christ-centered culture there at Ligonier. Um, but I want to say that how, how easy it is when we've established a culture for the culture or for the tradition to overtake the original purpose and leave Christ out. Uh, reformed culture, believe it or not, is a thing now. Um, you go and you, you mugs, T-shirts, uh, reformers' faces or Greek or Latin phrases on the T-shirts. There's films, podcasts, social media. In one sense, it's kind of it's wonderful to see this growth in, in reformed understanding and, lo- and culture. Uh, but I also have to warn, and perhaps it's more danger for myself and my generation than some of you. But we have to warn of this commercialization of the buzz of the relative popularity by which we can become distracted. Uh, any culture or tradition, including reformed culture and tradition, can sweep us away from the very Christ which it pre- preaches. Uh, we can all too easily come to love the doctrine of definite redemption more than the Christ who definitely redeemed. Our tulip t-shirt is cool, but do we love the Christ that tulip points us toward? We can all too easily clutch to the, the precious confessions and catechisms that we have rather than clinging to the Christ that they present. And of course, it doesn't have to be, you know, t-shirts or it could be any variety of things. I think the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, which my parents grew up in, the church I was baptized in, um, I believed was swept away into traditionalism, which turned to cold orthodoxy, which inevitably led to liberalism and really hot unorthodoxy. In this passage, Paul preaches to the Jews about the very center of their faith. Uh, it's, it's what Calvin called their principle and only felicity, or their chief and only happiness. That is Christ. 
He's the centerpiece of their faith, faith, which thus far they lack. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. They are living a Christless faith and thus making the whole of their history and religion and faith and covenants and all the richness that's there null and void because they don't have Christ. So the point here is this, that as we observe kind of the hard-heartedness, the hard-headedness, the stiff-neckedness of the Jews, as Brian Borgman pointed out, we can't stand on the sidelines and wag our finger at them. We're every bit as hard-headed, every bit as stiff-necked. So today I kind of want to just follow through the story and observe how Paul sets up the rest of his sermon with this history of the people of Israel. And we'll see how everything hinges on Christ. It either stands or falls with Christ. Um, for him, it's Christ or it's nothing. So Paul is an itinerant missionary. He travels around. He's not a pastor of a particular church, but he's traveling around seeking to bring in new converts and found new churches uh, you remember Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were in Cyprus, in the city of Paphos. And then in verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, so Paphos to Perga is about a 200-mile sail to the north into uh, what is now Turkey or, or um, Asia Minor. Um, and Perga is in this region called Pamphylia in the south on the Mediterranean Sea. And then the journey from Perga north to Antioch is a 125-mile walk, 3,000-plus feet vertical gain, um, known for having robbers on the road. It's a good road. It wasn't like a mountain trail. Um, it was a good Roman road, but uh, it was a journey. Um, which, you know, why did John leave? Perhaps the journey scared him, the robbers. Um, perhaps it was this friction that, that his uncle Barnabas was the leader and now Paul is the new leader and there's some tension there. Perhaps it was fear over persecution going into a hostile pagan environment. Um, we don't know why John Mark left, but it did become a point of dispute between Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15. And Paul clearly here seems to have heartily disapproved of John Mark's reason for leaving. It wasn't, in his mind, a good reason. Uh, we see in 38 of 15 that Luke describes it in this way. Paul did not think it wise to take him, to take John Mark back after he had left, uh, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. That's how Paul felt. He felt he had deserted them. Now, this Antioch should not be confused with the Antioch of Syria, um, from which they had departed. This is a different, in fact, there were, I think, 16 different Antiochs named after Antiochus. Um, so Antioch is in Pisidia, which is in the interior of what modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, in the region we would know as Galatia. And it's probable that Paul was writing to this very church that was planted on this very trip in the region in general when he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And in fact, um, Galatians was one of the earliest letters written in the early 40s, probably. And this missionary journey was, or excuse me, the late 40s. This missionary journey was also in the late 40s. Um, so very close timing here. 
And, and kind of what I want us to notice about that is looking at the book of Galatians, we get a sense of the kind of theological depth and richness that Paul was putting into these really baby Christians. When you think about Galatians, justification by faith, covenant theology, substitutionary atonement, pneumatology, he, he's packing it in and these guys are baby Christians less than a year in. Now in 14, uh, he says, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Um, So somehow they knew that, that Paul was a person of esteem, someone who could speak to them. Um, maybe they knew that he was trained by Gamaliel or that he was a Pharisee. Maybe maybe uh, Paul had a special kind of go-to-meeting garb that he wore that would set him off as, as a Pharisee. We don't know, but, but they follow the custom. They read the law and the prophets and allow a rabbi to offer some words of application or exhortation. And this is something we see Jesus doing many times in the synagogue through his ministry And, of course, Paul takes the opportunity. He jumps at the opportunity to preach the gospel in the synagogue. Uh, My grandpa, Cruz, was a missionary on the Navajo reservation. Um, And there were Mormon missionaries on the field at the same time. And once, I think kind of unwittingly, they invited him to speak at one of their gatherings, at a Mormon gathering. So he went... And he spoke from Hebrews 7 about the high priesthood of Christ and his complete sacrifice. He, he kind of infiltrated this cult meeting and preached the gospel. Now, in contrast, I don't think Paul sees himself as an infiltrator here. This gospel is their birthright. This is their story. From Romans 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So it is, by all rights, their story. And he wants to make sure they get the best part of their story right. Which is why he addresses them as men of Israel, even though they're not in Israel. He calls them men of Israel. In 16, so he stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he let them out of it, led them out of it. Notice he calls them men of Israel. And interestingly, he includes the God fearers, those, those Gentiles who would have been in the synagogue. And in, there's a shared uh, uniting history. These people have God. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So there's this uniting history. One people, one God. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. You see in Paul's ministry a passion for the Jews, a passion for his kinsmen, that the Jews would really get it, that they would get the gospel. Again, in Romans 9, he says, For I I could wish that I myself were accursed. Or he's saying, I wish I could be damned and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So, Do we have that kind of passion for our kinsmen? I mean, to say, 
damn me and let them be saved. I think that's a bit of hyperbole. No one really thinks that, but man, to have that passion to say, that's how much I want them to be saved. Paul goes on, and again, stealing a concept from Brian Borgman here, he pointed out that there are, depending on how you count, 14 verbs in this next section where God is the subject. God is the actor. 14 verbs where God is the subject. Here Paul is reaching back into the history of his kinsmen, and he shows how God's hand has guided their history leading up to its great and final conclusion, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. For him, it's all about Christ. Now, for any, any, anybody who would say, uh, let's leave election out of the pulpit. Uh, it's too controversial, too divisive. Paul here, he leads with election. In verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. It's foundational. He chose our fathers. Why did he choose them? Because, you know, were they strong and mighty? Uh, were they righteous people? Did they have something to offer to God? You know, he chose, God chose a nobody. He chose a pagan. He chose Abram and said, I will make from you a great nation and kings shall come from you. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, Moses reminds the people why God chose them. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God is the initiator. God is always the initiator. Salvation, redemption, covenants, they're all his business. As Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. So he sees fit to bring his family and to bring us into his family and to make us a nation unto himself. We need to remember that as we wrestle against this natural inclination, a fallen inclination to adopt Christian culture and values and to turn them into the mere traditions of men even as these men in the synagogue were being reminded that this whole thing is God's thing. He's the initiator. We are the recipients. He's the subject. We're the object. Now, God's providential hand continues to guide his chosen people. In verse 17, he says, And he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. So Israel arrives really in Egypt as a famine-torn, uh, beleaguered family unit. They're not a nation. They're just, what, 70 people, I think? Um, that's how they arrive in Egypt. But the Lord prospers them. And even, even as they became slaves to Pharaoh, uh, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But also his promise, I will make your descendants as the sand of the seashore. He's building a nation even in the midst of slavery in Egypt. And then God, God with uplifted arm, leads them out in Exodus. Um, and any time God's hand or arm is mentioned, it's a, it's a reference to his mighty power. 
uh, his providential guiding of his people. Unlike uh, the God of deism, who merely creates his sort of magnificent masterpiece, the exquisite watch that he winds up and then stands back and lets it unwind. Um, God is a God who, who daily, moment by moment, interacts with his creation, causing it to unfold to his good pleasure. Then verse 18 for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. <laughs> I love the way he said, he put up with them. <laughs> the, the verb here is, it means to bear with the disposition, manners, and conduct of anyone. Uh, I think of a mother here. Steadfastly guiding her children along day by day, all the while enduring the fruits of their sin and immaturity. The whining, the poor manners, unpleasant disposition, temper tantrums, dinner table burps from boys. Right, Kathy? <laughs> Why? Because she loves her children. She puts up with them. But it's a putting up with for nurture, for care, for love. Deuteronomy, again, Moses is reminding the people and he says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery because of the hand of Pharaoh, uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He says, it is because the Lord loves you. That's why he takes care of you. That's why he puts up with you and me, because he loves us. Paul reminds these Jews that it was, it's, it's not for anything in you or anything in your forefathers that he cared for these people. He cared that for them because he cared for them. Same is true of us. He, he's like a mother or father tenderly caring for us with love, putting up with our antics, um, which at first blush may feel disheartening. Like, God is putting up with me? I thought I was so wonderful. But I love how one song puts it so simply, but just so right. I can't do anything to gain what he's done. He just loves me because he loves me because he loves me just because he does. Isn't that the most comforting thing to realize that God is not a fickle friend who will be my, by my side as long as I have something to offer him in return. As long as he likes my personality or as long as he enjoys my company. If God is, has the love of a, a nurturing mother or father, an unconditional, perfect love toward those who are his beyond what any father or mother could give because he views us in Christ who is truly altogether beautiful and compelling and pleasant and obedient. Now in verse 19, after destroying uh, seven, uh, excuse me, he says, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Um, he gave them their land as an inheritance. He destroyed the nations uh, despite their grumbling. Because God is a covenant God. He says he destroyed the nations. He gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, by the way, to this point, the whole synagogue is, is on board with what Paul is saying. 
You can kind of start to feel the room quiver with excitement. Paul knows how to, to get these guys going. They're saying, yes, yes, he gave us, God gave us the land as an inheritance. You can kind of hear this manifest destiny sort of mindset, right? He gave us the land as an inheritance, and we have been dispersed, and we suffer Roman rule in Galatia for now, but one day Rome will be overthrown, and Israel, the land of our inheritance, will be restored. You can you can feel their excitement at this point in Paul's sermon. But Paul continues in verse 20, All this took about 450 years, and after this he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So roughly 400 years of exile, 40 in the wilderness, 10 years of conquest, 450 years. Um, And you can kind of see the leading lines of redemption, uh, redemptive history here. They're, They're always pointing, always directing our gaze through the Bible. This period uh, of the judges is not really exactly the high watermark of Israel's history. Um, they're, they're not, they're, there's no fidelity to God in any consistent way during the period of the judges. And they keep falling and God keeps sending men or women to, to rescue them. And each time they fall. But even these judges, uh, they leave us wanting more. Someone better, Samson, a great man, a great judge, he leaves us wanting more. He's not the Messiah. We're we're continually being pointed forward until finally he brings along the great prophet Samuel. But Samuel is not the Messiah. He's not the savior of the people. He is really one of the greatest, most faithful men in the Bible. Uh, But the people set aside his leadership and really set aside the leadership of God because they want a king, a king like the nations have. Verse 21, they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Uh, Funny here, Saul doesn't spend much time on a 40-year reign. He just mentions him in passing. Uh, uh, Saul was a flop. He was a failure of a king. And clearly not the Messiah. But Paul here, he's driving toward a point. He's trying to get somewhere. He's getting to David. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Dr. Sproul says, David was one of the most bloodthirsty Ruthless, barbaric leaders of all time. He was the chief of sinners of Old Testament leaders. He was. He was an adulterous murderer. And yet, a man after God's own heart. Because unlike Saul, who sought his own will and was continually making excuses for himself, David did seek the will of the Lord. And when he failed, he fell on his face in repentance. So God gave him a promise, a promise that one would come and rule on his throne forever. Now, again, you can kind of imagine the synagogue leaders uh, giving each other excited glances at this point. Like, we, we like this Paul guy. Uh, we, we see where he's headed here. David promised to David, the king who will come to sit on the throne of David. Uh, you can see the excitement in their in their attitudes. If there were any Baptist Jews there that day, they're probably offering up some amens, some preach it brothers. Yes, God has done this. God has guided our people. God is with us. 
What will he do, Brother Paul, for us? Paul tells them, he tells them in verse 23, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, and they're saying, yes, preach it, brother. God has brought, and they're saying, has brought, past tense, a Savior to Israel, a Savior, Jesus, he has promised. That took an unexpected turn. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Paul's doctrine cuts the room like a knife. It immediately divides. There can be no middle ground. Either Paul has lost his well-trained Jewish marbles, or the law and the prophets and all they had read, that the whole beloved history of God's covenant people, that the, the whole record, uh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim, it's all about this one man who had already lived and died on a Roman cross, Jesus of Nazareth. Either these people are missing the greatest figure in their own history, waiting for another to come, or Jesus is not the Messiah, and they're validated in not believing in him as they wait for another. There's no middle ground there. Paul will go on later in the sermon, which we won't get to today, to offer some biblical proofs for why Jesus is the Messiah, but now he simply proclaims, It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been all about Him. God, the same God, has brought Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as He promised. Paul concludes this sort of set-up portion of his sermon by pointing them to John the Baptist. Uh, We got to talk about that in Sunday school this morning. That was a good uh, preemptive conversation. Uh, These Jews, they're sitting there in the synagogue. They know the scriptures. Their own scriptures have foretold from Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, John the Baptist is clearly the perfect fit for the voice crying in the wilderness. He's, he is Elijah to come. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. In verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Um, John leveled the ground for the Messiah, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Um, unlike Christian baptism, this is a baptism, which is, Christian baptism is a baptism of adoption, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. John here proclaims as an Old Testament prophet, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And many, many people came to be baptized in the wilderness by John. He actually became a man of great fame. He was very well known. So well known, in fact, that some people were beginning to wonder, is this the one? Is this the Christ? And his response, uh, we see in verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So John must decrease as Christ increases. 
Uh, John is, is the bulldozer leveling the road for the chariot of the king to come. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, the Elijah who must come. This man has spoken. He has identified the Christ. And as great as he was, John would be his servant. In fact, less than a servant. For a servant would untie the sandals of his master. John says, I'm not worthy to do that. It's all about Jesus. So, Paul's point is crystal clear in this passage. That it's Jesus. It's Jesus the Messiah. It's Jesus your Messiah. I like the way Calvin described the purpose of this passage. He said, uh, Paul's purpose is to bring the Jews to the faith of Christ. To better do this, he needs to declare that they surpass other nations in this one thing that the Savior was promised to them, whose kingdom is their principle and only felicity. Uh, He goes on to say, this is the drift of this first part of Paul's sermon that this is the main point of the law and the foundation is of God's covenant, that they have Christ for their captain and governor, that he may restore all things among them, and without him religion cannot stand, and that they shall be most miserable without him. We have a rich and blessed heritage, and I dare say we have our own rich and blessed traditions and culture. Rooted in the history of Abraham, of David, of John the Baptist, the apostles, uh, rooted in our forebears, Augustine, Huss, Luther, Calvin, the Westminster Assembly, the Puritans, Machen, Warfield, Sproul. Uh, and we should rejoice in this. We would be fools to say, I don't have a tradition. Uh, Everybody has a tradition. And he who says he doesn't is the most dangerous because he can't analyze his own tradition. We can't say, I don't have a particular Christian culture. That would not be true, and it would be to reject a blessed heritage handed down to us by the strong arm of God. But we must be careful. I think one illustration here may help. Uh, one evening at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon was warning the people of the dangers of indulging in small sins. When he was done, uh, a visiting American minister was given the opportunity to offer a few words. Kind of going off Spurgeon's message, he railed against the sin of tobacco use. When Spurgeon returned to the pulpit, he said, Something along the lines of, by the grace of God, I hope to enjoy a good cigar before going to bed tonight. His point being, of course, that in such areas such as smoking or other gray areas, that we have Christian liberty. You may choose not to smoke for any reason that you choose, or you may choose in moderation to enjoy a cigar with Thanksgiving if that's something you're into. Um, but now you you find t-shirts and mugs with, with Spurgeon's face and this quote on it. It is a testimony to the compelling power of a reformed view of Christian liberty. I, I have seen a number of times friends who have come out of more fundamental legalistic backgrounds to more reformational way of thinking that they begin to enjoy Christian liberty to the glory of God. And that warms my heart to see freedom that, that truly resting in Christ can bring to the human soul 
Uh, now this is just one example, one tiny sliver of the massive body of true Christian tradition and culture that would bring, bring blessing and joy to the human soul. But, but God help us if we have all these blessings and more, but do not have Christ as our principal and only felicity. Our first and only true happiness. Because we can, we can get caught up in the culture of drinking beer and smoking cigars, right? We can get caught up in the culture of, of uh, doctrinal discourse and losing sight of Christ. God help us if we have all these great blessings, but do not have Christ as our principal and only felicity. Christ is the soul. He's the heartbeat of our history, of our traditions, of our culture. In Him consists all their richness. And without Him, they're, they're a mere facade without a foundation. Uh, I just want to close uh, by letting the Apostle Peter, you can turn there if you'd like, to First Peter 1. We'll let him orient, orient, uh, orient our hearts to the one in whom all things hold together. First Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was ind indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Those things into which angles, angels long to look. Praise God for the richness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The prophets inquired carefully about and in which angels long to look. Amen.